Well, hey, welcome to Friday, and uh, it's weekend. Yay. Now we're going to do some philosophy. Friday. <laughs> For pastors, it's not weekend, though, is it? No ways. No, we've, it's just begun. So it's a good time to be thankful you're not a pastor and... You know, uh, and for pastors, we, we, we need to be ramping up at this point. That's why we're on to philosophy. So it's a good intersecting point between, between clergy and laity. You're getting into the, the weekend, you know, what better time for philosophy and for a pastor? We're just like, dude. Ah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So stay with us. We'll run the intro. Nick, hey, hey, ramped bro. up. You're not even preaching this Sunday. No, man. I've got uh, Russell Cannons from uh, Shaw Baptist coming down to take our Easter services. So lame, bro. What do you even do down there? Do you uh, even pass it? I actually preach twice on a Sunday, Michael. <laughs> yeah, but they're such short sermons, though. <laughs> like two little devotions. That's right. 40 minutes. <laughs> 40 minute little diversions. Um, so, you know, okay. So, you know, you've got someone preaching for you. Um, so what, are you just this philosopher guy in the corner thinking about your transcendental argument? Definitely. It needs a lot of thought. <laughs> I can almost picture that statue that... Uh, but the, the naked guy. Uh, with the his, naked guy. Hands up. Why are you thinking of me naked? Will you stop it? <laughs> Stopped. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's shut up. It's blocked forever. Never will I go there again. Um, all right, sweet. So hey, transcendental. Uh, yeah. This is like the reformed favorite thing. This is like our the sweetheart of Re- of apologetics and reformed theology. Yeah. Um, ever since Bonson and all his <laughs> theonomic glory came along, uh, we, we've just been uh, decimating atheists with this argument. Um, so let's yeah. talk about it. All right, cool. Well, let me set it up and then we can start discussing it. Cool. So a bit of the background. Um, the transcendental argument for God was uh, implemented by Cornelius Vantel, and they say perfected by Greg Bonson. And Vantel was a professor of Klein. We just need to say that. Just yeah. Because, yeah. There we go. And uh, so tra- the transcendental argument is sort of the staple uh, argument for what we now know to be presuppositionalism. But let me give you the philosophical background. Yeah. So the transcendental argument um, as a type of argument was first used and named by Immanuel Kant. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's, here's the, the Kantian situation and why he developed this form of argument and the form that it took when he developed it. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you've got David Hume. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you've got Leibniz. Now, David Hume, we know, was an empiricist. Uh-huh. who believed that we only know things by way of uh, the senses. Uh-huh. Leibniz was a rationalist who believed that we knew things through the mind. For Leibniz, if the whole world went up in flames, the world would still exist in my mind. Okay, so uh-huh. pure rationalism going on. So on the one side, he's got empiricism. On the other side, he's got rationalism. And he's dealing with the, uh, the age-long problem of how do we know stuff. Uh-huh. And uh, uh-huh. what he did is, in reaction to both these extremes, he, he brought a middle way, a third way. And what he basically said is this, is that there's a combination between sense data, but there's something that the mind supplies, something Mm -hmm. we would now call a presupposition. Mm -hmm. Categories that the mind brings, what we might even now name innate ideas. Mm -hmm. And so the mixture of innate ideas being brought to bear upon the sense data enables us to know things certainly. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so um, concepts like space and causality uh, can reckon were, were these innate ideas which would be brought, these presuppositions which would be brought to bear upon sense data and through this, uh, through these two uh, these two things uh, interacting, we would come to know. So these presuppositions in combination with sense experience enable us to know things, and this is what he called the transcendental aesthetic. And so Van Til's apologetic method um, is not pure Kantian uh, transcendentalism, Mm -hmm. but it borrows from this notion of, you know, uh, a necessary preconceived notion in order to interpret data. Yes. Okay, and that's that's the heartbeat of uh, the transcendental argument. Good. Yeah, that's very yeah. helpful. Yeah. So, I mean, Van Til, uh, as we know, is a Reformed theologian. Mm-hmm. He taught at Princeton. He left Princeton with Machen and went over to Westminster, uh, Philadelphia. <coughs> and uh, he became the professor of apologetics. And he was incredibly critical of the traditional arguments for God. So we've looked at some of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've, actually looked at, we've actually looked at the traditional arguments for God in a presuppositional way. But yeah. um, he was he was critical of the pure traditional approaches, right? And um, the reason for this was because of his reformed and biblical convictions. Mm-hmm. So, what he basically said was this: you know, looking at empiricism, empiricism rests on man's ability to scrutinize the universe and reason his way to God. Bentel mm-hmm. says impossible because mm-hmm. in the first place you ought to be assuming God because that's what the Bible does, and total depravity means you can't reason to God. And then with rationalism, it's uh, rationalism's resting on man's ability to reason from what man is able to identify as foundational truth and then move up a logical chain to God. Mm-hmm. And once again, total depravity makes that impossible. And it, his problem was what he called autonomous reason, mm-hmm. that there's no such thing as thought uh, that makes any sense that is not dependent upon the God who made that thought to exist. Mm-hmm. So, yep. That's that's Van Til, and that's the background to the transcendental argument. Shall I break it down and give you, give it to you in the abstract philosophical form? Um, yeah. So you're you're preaching this um, at your church, right? You're doing a, a bit of a. Um, yep. So we've um, and just just while I'm thinking about that now, um, I messed up. I didn't put the. We did. Nick and I recorded a thing on the. Um, so we've we've uh, done a few of the arguments now. If you've been tracking with us, but the yep. ontological one is the one that went missing. You might have noticed we've referred to it, but it it, it sort of just I don't know where I put it. <laughs> basically, <laughs> um, so I'm looking around my trash can, seeing if I can find it. I don't know if we'll do it again, right? I mean, are we going to try and do that again if I can't find it? Oh yeah, sure. Why okay, not? well, yeah, we'll see how we feel. Um, but yeah, hopefully I find it and I'll put that up in sometime in the future. So forgive me for having referred to that in the past. Uh, it's coming. We'll find it. We'll do it again. We'll do something. Um, so yeah, you're, you're, you're fresh on this. Uh, let's have it, yes. man. Let's break it down. Okay, break so it down. Yeah. Here's the abstract philosophical form. For X to be the case, Y must also be the case because Y is the necessary precondition of X. So that's its... That's its Abstract philosophical form as a, as a form of argument, it, it's, it's, it can be used for many things. Okay, the transcendental argument is an answer to skepticism by showing that the things doubted by a skeptic are in fact necessary preconditions for even skepticism to exist. Right. So, so this is what it looks like. Um, the presuppositionalist often takes any affirmation that any unbeliever makes. So, let's say, for example, so we, we let's target any human experience. So it can be. Mm-hmm. Reason, love, 
beauty, a moral verdict. We start with anything that the unbeliever affirms. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is common ground that we share with them in human experience. Mm -hmm. And we say this. <clears throat> love exists. In order for love to make any sense or exist, God must be the necessary precondition. Mm -hmm. Therefore, God exists. Right. Okay, so, so the, the strength of this argument is that it, it can begin with any experience. I mean, that famously uh, putting the toothpaste, toothpaste cap on the toothpaste tube can be a starting point for the transcendental argument because right. you're assuming the orderliness of your senses, interpreting what your body is doing in a universe which does what God intended it to do. This predictableness of the universe is something God gave and in order for you to even make sense of a toothpaste lid going on top of the toothpaste tube, God must be the necessary precondition to understand that phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, good. Now, I suppose one of the things we need to flesh out, maybe just um, maybe you were going there anyway, but um, <coughs> is why? Why is God the necessary precondition? Okay, so basically, this is God's universe. All facts are God's facts, and since nothing can be understood apart from God. Um, it's so instead of moving from an autonomous point away from God, because God is the ground of all truth, we must begin with God as the necessary precondition. So, I mean, we, we've actually used this argument before when we looked at the moral argument. Right. We actually use a form. It's a very, it's very similar in structure to the transcendental argument. Mm -hmm. Because when the unbeliever says that morality exists, then we say, well, how do you know what good is without God? Yes. So it's it's that sort of an argument. <clears throat> right. God is the necessary precondition to interpret any human experience. And so what you often find um, <clears throat> uh, presuppositionalists doing, and Saiten Bruggenkat is the man that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. He's uh, He beats this drum over and over again whenever he's interacting with unbelievers or atheists. Yeah. He's asking the question, how do you know? Mm -hmm. And the reason he does that is he wants to highlight that the atheist is assuming that reason exists. So let's let's just stop. And this is one of the things presuppositionalists do. Mm -hmm. They get they hypothetically get inside the unbeliever's worldview, mm -hmm. and they say, okay, let's hypothetically say that your premises are true. Mm -hmm. Evolution is the reason for everything that is. Mm -hmm. If evolution is true, thought cannot be thought. Because what is thought? Thought is merely a concoction of chemicals in the brain. Mm -hmm. If a different line of evolution had been uh, if, you, if we could rewind the tape and evolution could replay itself, we thought would be something completely different to what we now experience it to be. Right. Thought is not necessary. Yeah. Yet you hold it to be necessary, but you can only hold it to be necessary if you assume a God who made it to be so. So right. you're borrowing the stability that God gives to the universe from the Christian worldview. It's borrowed capital from that point of view. And so the unbeliever is inconsistent in their use of things like reason, moral judgment, meaning, purpose, and all that other stuff. Mm, mm. Um, so it's, they're all, we're always trying to bring them back to the inconsistency that they are functioning in a way that they believe in God while they rationally deny Him. And then in the process of rationally denying Him, the use of reason mm -hmm. or the appeal to science and a universe that continues to be stable is also assuming God. So everywhere you turn, God is the foundation of everything you're using or assuming. Right. Now, I think that comes through very, very clearly in terms of um, the moral side of things. So, you yeah. know, the good and the evil and all, all of that. Um, you, I mean, it's obvious. You need some sort of absolute standard for good and evil in order to even enter into that. 
discussion. Um, but for logic, it gets a little bit fuzzy. And because so much is being pinned on this, um, you know, let, let's just play a bit of devil's advocate, so yeah, to speak. I, mean, I think logic is great. Yeah. So, that's, you know, you come along. Yes. Yeah, Sorry, so let's let's think about the laws of logic for a moment. You know, the law of non-contradiction. Yes. <clears throat> so let's just assume for a moment that evolution is true, mm-hmm. that we are here by chance, mm-hmm. that thought is nothing more than a concoction of chemicals in the brain. Thought is not actually thought. Thought is the feeling that the chemical concoction in your brain is making you to feel. But thought in and of itself doesn't have a meaning. It's not a thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a label we've applied to a thing and the label is arbitrary. Yeah. So logic is irrelevant. Logic you can't you can't you can't have <clears throat> rules, you can't have meaning, you can't uh, your your the very your very thoughts are nothing more than chemicals that you can't you can't give value to them at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So logic actually breaks down. Values break down. Everything breaks down if there's no objective go- uh, value system uh, giving giving meaning to it all. Right, and so, what they would typically do is um, assign that kind of basis um, on you know because you need something outside of yourself is what you're saying essentially yeah, that yeah. that um, is is providing the foundation for logic. Um, but they, uh, typically they'd sort of ascribe that to something other than God, like the universe itself. Yeah, and. <clears throat> But, uh, yes, uh, and I, I would just continue to repeat what I said, because right. at the end of the day, they're ascribing the, 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 the flutter of chemicals in their brains. I've, and I've got a C.S. Lewis quote at the back of my mind, because he also uh, latches onto this. Because mm-hmm. thought is nothing more than arbitrary fluctuations. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing. Mm-hmm. If chance is where we all come from. Because... Right. There isn't a God who made a universe and for us to live in it, and we can trust our senses because he's not deceiving us so that we have a <clears throat> a real, meaningful engagement with our existence, with our reality, as we have been put on a planet to uh, love him and worship him and be in connection with other human beings. All mm. of this is only made possible by a God who intended it to be so. Right. If it's all here by chance, Anything we give a label to is an arbitrary reference with absolutely no meaning behind it because it's not a thing. It just is what it is. Right. So even we if... It can only be descriptive, not prescriptive. Yes. Um, so even if you're assigning some sort of, um, I don't know, um, Well, let, standard... let me read you a quote. Here's a quote from Van Til. I think, mm-hmm. it, I, think it, I think it helps. Okay. He says, But the best and only possible proof for the existence of such a God is that his existence is required for the uniformity of nature and for the coherence of all things in the world. Right. So then he gives a little illustration. We cannot prove the existence of beams underneath a floor. Mm -hmm. If by proof we mean that they must be ascertainable in a way that we can see the chairs and tables in the room. So he's assuming like where we are now, uh, finite beings bound in time, can't get outside of the room to look underneath the floorboards, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We can't get a look at God. We're bound, we're in this reality. Mm-hmm. But the very idea of a floor as the support of tables and chairs requires the idea of beams that are underneath it. Mm-hmm. But there would be no floor if no beams were underneath. And so this is what he's saying. God plays the role of the beams. Mm-hmm. Thus, there, there is absolutely certain proof for the existence of God and the truth of Christian theism. 
And, and so even non-Christians presuppose its truth. They're acting as if there's floor beams, mm-hmm. while verbally they reject it. Mm-hmm. They need to presuppose the truth of Christian theism in order to account for their own accomplishments. Now, do you think Christian theism is necessary, or, or do you think theism in general? <laughs> um, there's a long, deep uh, explanation why mere theism cannot be. Christian theism is the only form of theism because presuppositionalism doesn't just rest on this philosophical argument. It rests on revelation of a a particular type of God, a covenantal God, a God who makes men men in his image, a God who makes creation as the arena within which he engages uh, through revelation with his creatures. Um, So we have to presuppose not just theism, Mm -hmm. the God of the Bible. Yeah, which is why they all like it so much. Because yeah. at the end of the day, it gets you straight there. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's almost like that. For example, so, for example, Trinitarianism and our personal yes. uh, relationships with each other being based on that aspect of God's uh, image in us, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so every every theism otherwise that you're going to be appealing to is going to be flawed. Yeah. It's not going to carry the day. Um, so let me, let me meet out, I think, one of the other things that you'll often find in presuppositionalism and the use of the transcendental argument. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a very famous verse. Well, I mean, so one of the questions I was always had as I was thinking about presuppositions is, is what verse can we use to ground this transcendental argument in? And I think I found one. I think okay. I found the best one. Uh-huh. So my, my favorite verse would be Psalm 36, verse 9. Let me read a few. Yep. So it says, For with you, speaking of God, is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light? Mm, mm, that's it. So that's that second line right there. In mm. your light, do we see light? So outside of God's light, there's darkness, but in God's light, we, we understand everything. Mm, mm, totally. And so that, that, that's God being the necessary precondition for understanding. Mm. But coming back to the technique that presuppositionalists use. Um, so here's the verse, Proverbs 26, verse 4 and 5. Mm-hmm. Uh, Answer not a fool according to his folly. Mm-hmm lest you be like him yourself, and answer a fool according to his folly, lest to be wise in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. So you've got this almost contradictory answer him, don't answer him. And what they do is this. Mm-hmm. Um, they try to demonstrate, on the one hand, the incoherence of the unbelieving worldview by stepping into that worldview and hypothetically adopting its foundations. Mm-hmm. And that is answering a fool according to his folly, mm-hmm. so that he's not wise in his own eyes. And then... On the other hand, we step into the Christian worldview, presupposing God as the necessary precondition to understand anything, and we take any question you want to ask us, mm-hmm. and we will demonstrate the coherence of the Christian worldview from uh, that perspective. And Van Til, you know, he, he rests a lot on the circularity. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not worried about circularity. You know, the charge of circularity has often been brought yeah. um, against presuppositionalism, but he basically says that all ultimate truth claims are necessary secular. You must assume the Bible as an authority because nothing higher than it in order to build upon it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's necessarily circular, not viciously circular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what we've said before, uh, maybe is worth repeating in that, you know, if you aren't going to be one of those wholesale presuppositionalist guys, then at very minimum, I mean, this becomes a, a really helpful defense um, <laughs> in that, you know, you can go at it. And, and what I, what I mean by that, by the way, I'm not sure how, uh, others uh, refer like, but what I what I'm what I'm talking about there is, you know, when you want to go on the offense, typically uh, what I'm thinking about is is less. Um, well, I suppose it is stopping the mouth of the unbeliever, but it's more winning the day with the argument, winning the person over. 
And um, I don't necessarily see the transcendental argument being the most winsome, um, you know, to come at come at that that intro sort of level um, to to bring a guy over into thinking about Christianity. But I do see it as something that, you know, completely gives this defensive protective measure in your argument in that you can go over, you can sort of uh, bring people um, into, you know, with other means into a a kind of an interest in, in, into things of Christianity where they they often are just mind, mind blowing at the amount of, you know, historical verifiability involved and, and just the manuscript evidence and all sorts of things that are often genuinely helpful where where obstacles um, lie there. But, you know, they just can't get you with this because whatever they're going to level against you, you're ultimately going to use against them and, and you're going to win the day on, on this uh, yeah. this basic sort of transcendental epistemological front. And so, uh, you know, I think I think that's worth keeping in mind. Like, you know, is this the thing you lead out with? Or And there are going to be some situations where you would lead out with this, you know, where, where people have been evidentialized to death, I suppose. You know, at, at that level, they think they've won the day and... And uh, it's it's important. I think of, for example, the Bonson Steinberg debate, where that's exactly what happened. You know, he, he came out and he just he just just leveled him and just said, "Listen, you can't even you can't even talk sense. You know, just just keep that in mind as you make your argument." Um, but I think the the thing for me is always uh, you have a theological truth to rest upon um, versus a common grace initiative to reach out within. Um, yeah. If I could put it that way, <laughs> I mean, just as a presuppositionalist, and I'm I'm still a learner in this, but what I've realized a presuppositionalist can do is he can take every traditional and evidentialist argument out there mm-hmm. and use it on a different footing. Mm-hmm. So we can take you know the cosmological argument, and instead of saying you know rational man whose mind has not been affected by by sin, we reject that Arminian or Catholic notion mm-hmm. or unbelieving notion, and we say rather. Well, God has said that uh, in Romans 1 that even nature reveals certain things about him, and here you are suppressing that mm-hmm. truth. We can demonstrate the reasonability of that truth to show your irrationality and unbelief and self-deception. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, we'd use that to, and that's using it in a presuppositional way. Yeah. So yeah. it's just by, by accepting what the Bible says is true about man, still stating the things that are true from general revelation. Mm-hmm. And so every other argument can be employed. But I think the concern of Antil is just to make sure that we don't we Give don't pretend yeah. it's, well, we just don't pretend that man's reason is autonomous. Mm-hmm. Totally, yeah. And, and my my thing has always been, yeah, I think that's you know theologically it's true. You know who can deny it? You know what I mean? It's it's there it is. Um, I suppose it's just that 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 and, and especially with Fantil, you know, and 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 other thinkers like them. They they struggled with common grace, you know. They really did. They they didn't want to allow for that category, and so I think to the degree that you do allow for a category of common grace, it's going to affect the way that you see a legitimacy in certain apologetic approaches. Um, yeah. You know, and, and maybe that's just the, the best place to leave it. You know, just just understand that those two doctrines are connected, and um, and they will probably affect. I mean, you know, it's not that, not necessarily to say that if you hold to common grace, you're going to have to go evidentialist or anything like that. But I think of Francis Schaeffer, for example. And, um, and you know, he... he yeah, I mean, if I understand Van Til correctly, I think what he's been saying is everything the Bible teaches is the necessary starting point. And mm-hmm. common grace is one of the Bible's teachings. Mm-hmm. Or the truths of general revelation, which men are suppressing, is part of the Bible's teachings. So 
as long as you sort of approach it that way, that I think way, you yeah. really have, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I just, I just want to read something I found in Mantle. I loved this. I thought it was so, just turned everything on its head. Like, so the question is, what is science? What mm-hmm. is true science? Mm-hmm. So listen to this quote from Mantle. Mm-hmm. The truly scientific method, the method which alone can expect to make true progress in learning, is therefore such a method as seeks simply to think God's thoughts after him. Mm. That's the best definition of true science in the world, to mm. think God's thoughts after him. Because the unbelieving mind ordinarily defines science as a neutral reasoning that mm-hmm. does not assume God. Mm-hmm. But true science, if we, if we take the Bible as our starting point, which discovers the actual truth is in fact the exact opposite. Mm. Thinking God's thoughts after him. It's assuming the existence of God in order to understand things in their truthfulness. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. And it makes, you know, it, just think about it as a scientist. I mean, you're not going to be curtailed. You're not going to be derailed by random theories that are just incompatible with truth, which often happen. You know, it's a scientist have to, if they don't have, even if they are just sort of living in a inconsistency and that inconsistency is saving them in that they are moving along logical grounds and whatnot, they're still prone to be taken out of it for a while at least as they follow rabbit trails that actually they could have caught up front if they had a good solid you know worldview of truth and understanding and um and i think i think that's really probably shown in history and that you do have you know those scientists who who were able to take some serious ground historically who did approach it from a a theistic worldview and um and you know would did amazing things in their time and, and you know i'm not saying that uh you know there aren't any uh good atheist scientists of course there are but you know you just you you can't help but wonder how much better they might have been if they operated within a worldview that was perhaps more dominant you know uh 500 years ago in yeah. that they might not have had to endure all the nonsense that they have had to you know um and 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 sort of operate within a rubric that's actually against science at the end of the day yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> now, there, there have been people who have spoken against presuppositionalism. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about them. So, uh, R.C. Sproul uh, accused presuppositionalism of fideism. Mm, mm, so, mm. fide is the word for faith from sola fide. Faithism, you know yeah. <laughs> and so, a mere believism that's, that's, that's uh, apart from reason. So Just believe pure, because you believe, yeah. Yeah, totally. pure faithism, you know. So, mm-hmm. the circularity of faithism. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think he was absolutely wrong okay. uh, in his critique mm-hmm. because, and I think William Butler. So if you here's the chain. So you got Van Til, mm-hmm. his student is Bonson, who improves on him, and then Butler is a man who's trying to progress Bonson's project of interpreting Van Til even further. Mm-hmm. And he put it this way: the presuppos- presuppositional method accomplishes two apparently contradictory things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is the relationship between faith and reason. Mm-hmm. So firstly, it establishes the truth of Christianity beyond question. So there's the strong rational basis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and secondly, it humbles reason and subjects it to revelation. Mm-hmm. So it seems these seem to be contradictory by upholding reason yet humbling reason. Mm-hmm. And so it has usually been asserted that, that the horns of the dilemma are these. You either have faith to the exclusion of reason, that's fideism, or reason must be boss in establishing faith. This is a third way which avoids both those extremes. It claims that without faith there can be no reason. Mm-hmm. 
And having once established the proper foundation for reason, then goes on to employ reason very skillfully. Mm-hmm. And so it's not it's not faith without reason. It's faith. It's faith giving reason its proper place. Yeah, yeah. Um, so reason is firmly established, but it's established on the basis of the authority of Scripture. And then it is well employed at every point to demonstrate, firstly, the coherence of Christianity as it explains all things, and secondly, the incoherence of unbelieving worldviews and their inabilities to account for human existence without God and enter the transcendental argument right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Well, uh, I think just because we're getting on in terms of time, let's let's draw it uh, to a close at that point. It would be interesting at some point to circle back and think more about Sproul's um, uh, you know, critique and, and the way that he that he uh, came at it. And, uh, you know, what was super interesting to me is just, uh, was it Sproul versus Bonson at one point? They had a little friendly debate at some, I remember seeing something like that. But I remember just toward the end of his life, he sounded like he had, you know, although he was, you know, really uh, had had, had uh, stamped himself with this um, classical apologetic stamp with Gerstner and whatnot, yeah, um, it sounded like he was, or at least it, the, the the talks that he had um, uh, had with with various other thinkers gave the impression that actually, you know, at some level, classical uh, apologetics and presuppositionalism are very, very close, and um, and so it's worth exploring those differences because I think a lot of the times, you know, it just becomes a missile throwing competition. You know, who can who can yeah. launch the biggest mi- missile? But if, I mean, I think if you look into this whole thing. You start seeing that it's actually not. I mean, everyone's everyone's making certain presumptions. Everyone well, is I using. Well, yeah. I think the ontological argument is presupposition. That's right. There we go. And I think actually that came up. So again, <laughs> that's kind of moves into a whole new uh, level of discussion, though. But let's uh, let's draw it to a close at this point. Um, good. Super helpful. Um, thanks, Nick, for conveying that super fresh info. Uh, transcendental, 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 transcendental. <laughs> Nothing so, to do with New Age. It comes from Kent. That's right. Uh, and um, we're not saying that you can. We're saying that you can't. <laughs> saying that you can't. <laughs> totally. Um, here's a here's a um, here's a little uh, game. S- try and say Irish wristwatch twice. Irish wristwatch. Oh, that would be bad. <laughs> try say uh, Black Bugs Blood ten times. Can't do it. I'm sure that if you um, if you read Vantel's stuff long enough, you'll find one of those in there. Transcendental oh, yeah. enough. It's, it's a word on its own. Try to say that 10 times fast and you're done. Transcendental aesthetic. Oh, yeah. there we go. Transcendental aesthetic. Whew. We're not saying that you can. We're saying that you can't. <laughs> um, all righty. Thanks a million, Nick. Appreciate it. Thanks.